Welcome to the City Beautiful Church podcast. Thank you for taking the time to join our family as we strive to live together in heavenly reality. For more great content, visit us online at citybeautiful.ch. Good morning and a very happy Advent to you. Like John said, we're so excited to finally be in the season. Um, And this is the first day of the church calendar um, because we have to be nonconformist and we cannot subject ourselves to the empire, which loves to start the year on January 1st. We're like, no, whatever is kind of the last Sunday in November, maybe, but occasionally it'll be the early December whatever. This is when we've decided. So last year or last week was Christ the King Sunday, um, the last Sunday of the church calendar where we're looking at Jesus as the King overall, Lord of all, the King of the cosmos. And now we start to tell the story of Jesus all over again. And Advent is a word that literally means uh, the coming, the anticipation of the Messiah. Uh, And so we're going to be looking at four major concepts or four major themes through this season. And today we're going to be focusing in particular on hope. And in order to lean into hope, we're going to be leaning into the prophets. We already heard from the prophet Isaiah, and we're going to be reading from Jeremiah in just a moment. So I'm going to pray. I'll pray for you. You pray for me. You know how this goes. Uh, And we'll get into this. And so Heavenly Father, we testify to the truth that you are here Uh, that you're with us, that you are for us, that you're not against us. And Lord, it doesn't always feel that way. Sometimes we come into this place with great trepidation, whether we have anxiety about the future or we have guilt and regret from the past that our own stories seem to drag us out of your presence. Lord, many of us have grown up with this idea that we have to clean ourselves up. We have to make ourselves presentable before we can enter in. Um, But Lord, we know that that's not true because of who we see you to be revealed in Jesus, our King. So Lord, however we come into this place, we come into your presence open-handed, ready to be surprised and delighted by whatever it is that you might want to speak uh, to each one of us. So Holy Spirit, we give you permission Uh, to do what you desire to do in this space, whether it has anything to do with what I talk about or not. Uh, We're here for an encounter. We're here to meet you and to be changed. So may the words of my lips and the meditations of all of our hearts be ever pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So we're going to be looking today at Jeremiah chapter 33. I'm going to read it. I'm going to talk a little bit about the context of this passage, and then we're going to be specifically talking about hope. It's a lovely big long bit of scripture. I know we all love lovely big long bits of scripture, so I'm going to take a drink to make sure we really get the the resonance that it needs. Because when you read the Old Testament, you need resonance, right? All right. When Jeremiah was still confined in the courtyard of the guard, the word of the Lord came to him a second time. So already we know something else is happening here. Go back and read the rest of Jeremiah. This is what the Lord says, he who made the earth, the Lord who formed it and established it. The Lord is his name. Call to me and I will answer you and tell you great and unsearchable things you do not know. 
For this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says about the houses in this city and in the royal palaces of Judah that have been torn down to be used against the siege ramps and the sword in the fight against the Babylonians. They will be filled with dead bodies of the people I will slay in my anger and wrath. I will hide my face from this city because of all of its wickedness. Merry Christmas. It goes on. Nevertheless, I will bring health and healing to it. I will heal my people and will let them enjoy abundant peace and security. I will bring Judah and Israel back from captivity and will rebuild them as they were before. I will cleanse them from all the sin they've committed against me and will forgive all their sins of rebellion against me. Then the city will bring me renown, joy, praise, and honor before all nations on earth that hear of all the good things I do for it. And they will be in awe and will tremble at the abundant prosperity and peace I provide for it. When was the last time that you trembled at the abundant prosperity and peace afforded you? Or did you go, eh, I need a little bit more? Hmm? This is what the Lord says. You say about this place, it's a desolate waste without people or animals. Yet in the towns of Judah and the streets of Jerusalem that are deserted, inhabited by neither people nor animals, there will be heard once more the sounds of joy and gladness, the voices of bride and bridegroom, and the voices of those who bring thanks offerings to the house of the Lord, saying, give thanks to the Lord Almighty, for the Lord is good, his love endures forever. For I will restore the fortunes of the land as they were before, says the Lord. This is what the Lord Almighty says. In this place, desolate and without people or animals, in all its towns there will again be pastures for shepherds to rest their flocks. In the towns of the hill country, of the western foothills and of the Negev, and in the territory of Benjamin, in the villages around Jerusalem, in the towns of Judah, flocks will again pass under the hand of the one who counts them, says the Lord. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the good promise I made to the people of Israel and Judah. In those days, and at that time, I will make a righteous branch sprout from David's line. He will do what is just and right in the land. In those days, Judah will be saved and Jerusalem will live in safety. This is the name by which it will be called the Lord, our righteous Savior. Amen. All right, so what's happening here? Many of you will be familiar with Jeremiah to some degree. Number one, he was called, in his opinion, and in the opinion of the kind of general populace, he was way too young for the job that God was calling him to. Number two, he was vastly unpopular in his day. You could even say, like, within his time frame, his ministry was a colossal failure, which is delightful if you're trying to make a little bit of money off of doing the work of the Lord. I'm kidding. You can laugh at that one. Relax, relax, okay? So Jeremiah, he's too young. He has these kind of, he's writing these poems, these prophetic pronouncements from Yahweh against Israel. And what was happening at the time is that the Jews were worshiping Yahweh. They're coming into the temple. They're making the appropriate sacrifices. And then they kind of like leave the temple. They go outside the city and they start worshiping the gods of the Canaanite religion, usually um, which comes to child sacrifice, okay? So a lot of times the illusion that we have when it comes to the Old Testament is that Israel was a monotheistic culture. They weren't. If they were, we wouldn't have an Old Testament because everybody was doing what they're supposed to. So the prophets come along because Israel cannot 
get themselves in this kind of full allegiance to Yahweh as the one true God. It's always Yahweh and a little bit on the side. A little bit of Yahweh, a little bit of Baal, a little bit of Artemis, a little bit of Asherah or, you know, Tiglath Pileser the second or whoever it is. Nickname your gods. Um, and that was the real problem, was that they were kind of mixing and matching. They were kind of giving their, their, their little nod of appreciation to Yahweh because it's traditional, but then they're going out of the temple and they begin to worship other gods, some of which includes child sacrifice. Are we preaching yet? Can we bring that into the temp- contemporary society just a little bit? Maybe. Does this set us up to understand what's going on here? And so Jeremiah comes along, and there's all these other prophets in the day, and they're coming to the kings, and they're like, oh my gosh, Yahweh thinks you're the bee's knees. You're doing a great job. Keep it up. And Jeremiah's poems are all like, nope. Uh, he's not real happy with you. Things are not going well. It's going to get real, real bad. And all these other prophets are like, no, 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 don't listen to Jeremiah. He's just this weird kid from the, from the boonies. Like, don't pay attention to him. You're great. You're doing great. God loves you. He has a wonderful plan for your life. And Jeremiah's like, no, 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 no. This is going to get real, 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 real bad. And so, of course, when we start this passage and we see Jeremiah is in prison, He's in prison because he's not speaking what everybody wants to hear. He's not popular in his prophetic pronouncements. And so he's writing uh, these, these pronouncements here in particular around about 588 B.C. And this is about two years before the exile to Babylon. So the kind of war is on uh, the border of Judah and Israel. Babylon's getting ready to come in. And basically Babylon's trying to sweep through the Middle East to attack Egypt um, Judah and Israel are just going to kind of be um, collateral damage along the way. Two years later, Babylon sacks Israel, sacks Jerusalem, carries most of the Israelites away into exile. Um, and Jeremiah is the one that's there like, I told you so. I told you this was going to happen if you didn't repent and kind of come back around. And so in the midst of this, uh, these poetic pronouncements against the imperial notions of Judah and Israel. Jeremiah also begins to imagine a better way, a better world. And this is where we see some of what we would call a messianic prophecy. Now, what we're doing in Advent, especially when focusing on hope, is we're looking back to the Old Testament to find what are the stories in Israel where there was an anticipation that God was going to do something, not just to deliver the people from Babylonian exile, but to deliver them from all exile. Because what we know is that even though Israel eventually comes back out of exile, um, after a couple generations, they begin to rebuild Jerusalem, they rebuild the temple. In some way, they knew, well, God didn't come back with us. Like, it's still empty and it's hollow. So maybe we're not in in a physical exile, but we're in something of a spiritual exile. And so they refer to this kind of 400 years, what we would say is between the, New Te- the Old Testament and the New, where they knew that the presence of God was not with them, and they're waiting for that, that presence of God, that new reality of God to be revealed to them. And so what we begin to find through the prophets is they speak of this Messiah. Uh, Messiah is a word that means the anointed one, almost like a king who God has determined is going to stand in the gap between God and his people, to bring them back into worship, right worship of him, right standing with him, to purify them of their sins, um, especially these sins of worshiping other gods, to get them back in line with Yahweh, and to be the people that he had called them to be from the time of Moses, to say, you're going to be 
uh, priests. You're going to be the mediator between myself and all nations. You're going to draw, I'm going to draw all nations into myself, and you're going to be the people through whom I do this. So we see these messianic prophecies, and that's what we're seeing here at the very end, especially when, when Jeremiah is saying, uh, on behalf of God, I will make a righteous branch sprout from David's line. To say there's going to be another king that's going to come. He's going to come from the line of David. But where David was a king in part, this person is going to be a king in whole. So why do we start here when we're doing Advent? Like why can't we just jump straight to like shepherds and donkeys and angels and stars and uh, little drummer boys? Like, you know, just the Bible stories. Like why are we going straight there? Why do we have to start with these uh, prophecies? I think because we have to start with hope. And if we're going to start with hope, we have to start in darkness. Merry Christmas. (laughs) If we're going to start talking about hope, we have to start in darkness. And that's why we listen to the prophets. Because they live patiently and faithfully in the darkness. Because Advent reminds us that we must learn the the art of sacred waiting if we are to lay claim to the promises that God has made to us. And that's what we find in these prophets, is that they're trying to minister to a people who have been numbed by the imperial notions of power and order. Okay, So you have a people that were rescued out of Egypt, out of slavery and death. They're brought into a promised land, but within a few generations, they become their own problems. By the time of Solomon, they've built their own empire. You know, Solomon was the, the largest arms dealer in the Middle East. Like, that's what the Bible tells us. He was rich beyond all comparison. And there's this bit where, like, especially as Americans, we read it, we're like, oh, my gosh, look how wealthy and wise Solomon was. And he had, like, 700 women, and that sounds great. You know, like, all of these things. And it's like, oh, we're just, they're just bragging on Solomon. But then when you actually read it in context, it's like these were the indictments against what had happened to Israel. They become so imperialistically minded. They become so power-hungry, they became like the very place that they had been delivered from. The worst thing of which was that they were beginning to enslave people to build their own temple, just like they were enslaved in Egypt. And so the prophets come along and find a numbed people, a people who have been so burdened by the status quo, that this is just the way the world is and things are not going to change, and so we may as well resign ourselves to it, we may as well accept imperial power, God has abandoned us, nothing's going to change, and just keep your nose to the grind, keep your head down, and just move, move from day by day. And the prophets are saying, no, this is not the way that Yahweh wants us to live. And I love that in this passage, especially that last little point, that it says, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the good promise I made to the people of Israel and Judah. Now, we're going to have the the lights come down. This is an image, a painting by Rembrandt. You can kind of see it. Now, if there's anything that you know from from art history, you know that um, in the Renaissance, in the Netherlands, the sun never shone, apparently, because every single painting that those Dutch guys painted is, right? It's just pitch black. Like, it's the worst. It's like you're peeling potatoes in the dark, or you're, like, talking to your wife in the dark, or you're, like, sitting and waiting for God in the dark. It was just a very dark time. Everybody should have moved to Italy. Their paintings are, like, glorious and bright and wonderful. But Rembrandt painted this painting, and this is Jeremiah waiting for the destruction of Jerusalem. 
And I love that in these images we have a guy who's sitting there and you can almost feel this kind of resignedness. Like he knows that his career is a failure. He knows that nobody's listening to him. Like there's one point in the story where the king takes like his entire collection of poetry and just throws it in the fire and he's like, well, great. Now I've got to start writing my poems all over again. And that's the face of a guy who just like had his entire anthology thrown in the trash. You know what I mean? But it's this idea of sacred waiting because a lot of times we think when we're struggling with things uh, that are happening around us or we're not seeing the, the promises that God has given us fulfilled, I've got to step it up. I've got to try harder and I've got to pray harder and maybe if I go to more Bible studies or maybe if I you know, do this or that or the other and it's like we have this thing which I think is like, it's like the best quality of American society can also be the worst where it's like onwards, upwards, let's go, let's move. And we have all these churches that have all these names with verbs in them. Like let's do this thing and we're just trying to make the promises of God happen on our terms. And then when we listen to the prophets and they're like, slow down. No, seriously, slow down and wait and sit in the darkness. Let yourself get a little bit itchy. And let's see what God might actually want to do there. Now we're beginning to think into that prophetic mindset. But I think this is really important here because we say, what do we mean when we say the promises of God? Because again, part of our societal imprint on that, the things that we read into scripture are things that we think that were promised. I've talked a lot about this, that when we talk about an abundant life, that we have an abundant life in Christ, that means I'm going to be healthy, I'm going to be wealthy, I'm going to have like a smoking hot wife, and I'm going to have you know, a four-car garage or whatever. And like I'm claim, laying claim to all these things in the name of the God. Like, and so we've seen kind of the prosperity gospel thing sweep through the latter half of the 20th century. It's kind of been repackaged in the past 20 years, but it's all basically like it's still out there, this prosperity gospel that like I, have, I am entitled to these things because I've made, written a contract with God that he's going to give me all these things. And he better give them to me quick, gosh darn it, or else maybe he's not the God that I thought he was. What do we find in this prophecy from Jeremiah that we're actually promised? I want to read that last bit once more. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the good promise I made to the people of Israel and Judah. In those days, at that time, I will make a righteous branch sprout from David's line. He will do what is just and right in the land. In those days, Judah will be saved, and in Jerusalem will live in safety. This is the name by which it will be called, the Lord, our righteous Savior. Note that it does not mention that you're entitled to a Tesla. Although if you can afford one, by all means. It doesn't promise you that you're going to be healthy necessarily, that you're not going to face troubles. Again, a kind of moralistic therapeutic deity that many of us worship. We're like, I don't know why I have to suffer. God doesn't want me to feel bad feelings. And if I'm feeling bad feelings, then something's wrong. Either God's wrong or I'm wrong. What do we find that we're promised? Number one, we're promised justice and righteousness. Justice and righteousness biblically are kind of the same concept. The Hebrew word is zedek. And justice does not mean what we think we mean when we say justice in our society. What does justice mean? It means kind of uh, everything being restored into its proper place according to God's intentions. 
So the justice of God is restorative. It's that God has created everything. There is an order to creation. There is a, is a beautiful harmony to creation that has been shredded apart by sin and evil and death. And that the work of God is to bring all of that back into its proper accordance. So the systems of humanity in which some are, have positions of power and others are oppressed, that's the kind of stuff that God is saying, I'm going to do away with that. Or the idea of retributive justice, an eye for an eye. I mean, my goodness, after these past couple weeks, can we honestly say that we have a system of justice in this country? It's a farce. It falls so short of what we truly understand justice to be if we're paying attention to what God is actually like. But justice is really important because it speaks to something like that is kind of the thing beneath the thing in a way that everything has its created order. Like God has intentions for the way that he created all of nature, us being part of that. And it's about restoring us into our proper place. And a lot of times what is happening because we've been told that we're self-made men, we're self-made women, we get to write our own stories is we're actually rebelling against the justice of God because we're saying, no, 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 I get to determine who I am. I get to decide what my identity is. Like my freedom is based upon whether or not I get to decide who I am and what I do with my life, which has nothing to do with the justice of God. But true justice is partially about us coming into understanding of who God has created us to be and, and agreeing with that, even though we're sometimes taken into that kicking and screaming and dragging our feet because it doesn't feel like freedom. But justice is an understanding that it's about restoration. It's about bringing back together all of those things that have been torn apart by sin and death. And the second thing that we're promised is salvation. We see this in this passage as well. In those days, Judah will be saved. And I love that in, in the Greek, the word salvation, it means rescue, like being pulled out of the raging waters into a ship. But it also means healing. And it kind of holds those two definitions in a creative tension, that when we are saved, we are being rescued from the corruption of the world around us, usually the mess that we've made of things because we've put ourselves in charge. But secondly, to bind back together what has been shattered by evil. And I was asked a few questions about salvation uh, this week. Someone asked about you know, praying the sinner's prayer or about altar calls or whatever. I said, we do altar calls all the time. There actually happens to be something on the altar of this church when we call people. Because a lot of times in our salvation-minded culture in the church, we've believed that it's kind of a one-and-done thing. Like, I come forward and I pray the prayer, and now I'm good, and it has nothing to do with the rest of my life until I die, and then I go and I get to hang out on a cloud with a cherubim and play a very small harp. Like, that's what salvation is. But if we read Paul carefully, Paul says in different places throughout his writings, it says, we have been saved, we are in the process of being saved, and someday we shall be saved. And it's this ongoing work of salvation in our lives that's actually the good news that we have in Jesus as this Messiah, as this king who is binding together. It's one part he is bringing us healing. It's one part he's rescuing us from corruption. But that's what we mean when we talk about salvation. And part of that is saving us from the pagan gods that when you and I, when we kind of nod our heads at Yahweh in this space on a Sunday morning and then we go back out in the world 
And then we sacrifice ourselves and we sacrifice our children to all of these other gods. Whether it's Ares, the god of the military-industrial complex. Whether it's Artemis, the goddess of erotic love. Whether it's Mammon, the god of the economy. Like, whatever it is, like, we kind of tip our hats at Yahweh on a Sunday morning. Then we go back out into, quote-unquote, the real world. And we do the same thing that our, our ancestors did in Israel that we begin sacrificing to all of these other gods because we haven't really taken it seriously, what it means to be gathered up into the people of God, to receive justice, to be made righteous, to find salvation and healing. And the problems that so often comes here is that we really, 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 really want the kingdom, but we're not so comfortable with the king. We want utopia. We all have some sort of a vision of how the world could be better. But we've seen time and again throughout human history what happens when you try to build a kingdom without the king. When as humanity, we take matters into our own hands and say, well, let us build an empire. Like, we'll do it. We'll organize things. We'll bring justice. We'll bring salvation. We'll bring healing. We can do it ourselves. And it doesn't work because we're stuck in our own sin. We're stuck in our, in our kind of death cycles and we need deliverance. And before long, I think many of us, you're probably here because you, like Paul, have let out that cry that we see in Romans 7. Who can save me from this vicious cycle that I'm stuck in? You see, when it comes to the promises of God, too often we get stuck on these surface desires of what it is that we think that we want or what it is that we think that we need. Again, because our society is so forward movement and so quick and so skips along the surface that we think these surface desires are the things that we really need. And so when we come to God, we turn him into the giant ATM in the sky who's just going to like give us all these very surfacey things. And we never slow down enough to enter into that darkness to discover what sacred waiting might reveal to us. Because sacred waiting creates space for us to allow the spirit of Jesus to take us beneath the surface of our need for instant gratification to discover what it is we truly desire. We've been so conditioned to expect everything right now. Everything right now. You know, last week I used that, that poem from William Butler Yeats, and I've been the past couple of years been kind of integrating poetry more into my daily devotionals just as a way to kind of you know, continually recenter me and just to kind of listen to these, uh, these amazing people that have come before us in a poetic manner. And so I was like, I really need to read more W.B. Yeats. So I went onto an unnamed, very large corporation's website, uh, and I hit a button. And the next day, that book was at my house, and it was awesome. And I've been reading Yeats, and I just feel smarter for it. It's great. And there's nothing wrong with that. You see, like, that's fine. We could talk about that corporation at some other point. But um, there's nothing wrong with it. It's just when that becomes our modus operandi, when we think that's just the way the world is supposed to work. I see it so often in relationship, in churches. You know, I talk to a lot of you about your expectations of church and community and this sort of thing. And what I find so often is people will say, well, I'm going to give these people four to six months 
And if I don't find this level of connection and relationship I need, I'm just going to go somewhere else. Or I love, you know, when we talk about church shopping, where did that phrase come from? Church shopping? Like I'm shopping for a church in the same way that I'm like shopping for a book or like a car or whatever. It's like we treat it the same way because it's a commodity and it has to meet all these needs that I have. Like I can go on a matrix and type in like this is what I need out of worship and this is what I need, blah, 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 blah. And it's like here's the best 12 options and then you just go and you shop for those things, you know. Like everything, we don't realize how much we can be conditioned to believe that our identity is as a consumer, which is I am what I eat. I am what I consume. Like I've believed these lies. Like it's so woven into us, you and I, we don't see it. But you know when we do begin to see it? It's when we begin to feel the deep existential dread rise. And what do we do? We go to Target. I mean, it's not sexy. Like that's what we do. We jump on an unnamed, very large online organization's website and buy a thing. You know? Like, that's when we believe my identity is in what I consume. And if the sooner I can get it, the less I have to confront the existential dread that I feel in the depths of my being. If I can distract myself, then maybe I don't really have to go into those deep things. And then we actually convince ourselves those are the things that we actually want. Like, I really want a latte to make me happy, or a relationship, or a whatever, fill in the blank. And a lot of this comes from our confusion between the God of the Old Testament, Yahweh, the God revealed in Jesus, with this moralistic, therapeutic deity that so many of us have believed in, that it's a God, he promises me happiness, and he promises me stuff. And if I'm a good boy or I'm a good girl, God's basically like Santa Claus. He just kind of gives me the things that I want because I've behaved appropriately. And then eventually we just all kind of go to heaven when, when this whole thing's done. Like that's, that's what so many of us have settled for. But to get our needs met immediately like that, that kind of instant gratification, it robs us of the opportunity to dig deeper and to say, well, what if the thing isn't really the thing? What if that's not actually what I want? And I think that's why there's so much um, ennui, to use the French term, in our culture today. So many of us feel this sense of kind of like a meaningless depression. You know? Like, we're not, we're not anxious because we're suffering all the time. We're anxious because we don't suffer. We're anxious because we have comfort. It's like the philosopher Soren Kierkegaard said, the only thing worse than not getting what you want is getting what you want. The problem with our society for you and I is we got what we wanted. And it didn't make us any happier. It didn't get to the deeper things of what we truly desire, but we so kind of compulsively skip across the surface of desire, only meeting these very surface needs that we never slow down enough to allow the Holy Spirit to take us into the deeper thing and say, what is it that I'm actually looking for right now? What do I really desire? Because we know. We know what we really desire because we know that we were created with intention, that God created us with a very particular design and a very particular set of needs. It's not wrong to have needs. To have needs is to be human. But the needs that God created us for 
we can sum up in the word love. We desire love. We want to be loved. We want to love other people. Like that is our true nature. I think that's one of the biggest shifts for me in the past couple of years to realize, oh, it's not that love is so alien and foreign to us as human beings. It's this foreign land. It's to go, oh, no, that's actually home base. Like to be human is to love and be loved. We just don't agree with that. We think that's too good to be true. And that takes many manifestations. Sometimes we just really want to belong. We want someone to tell us we're okay. We want someone to tell us we're worthy. This is why, like, you know, for our church, we have these three kind of primary values that guide everything that we do, that it's intimacy with Father God, it's learning how to inhabit our identity in Christ, and it's discovering our purpose as the Spirit-led church, because I think those three questions are at the core of what it means to be a human being. Who do I belong to? Who am I because of that sense of belonging? And what am I supposed to do with my life? And those are the three questions because our culture is so addicted to instant gratification and consumerism that we keep answering the wrong way. We answer it with stuff and experiences and surfacey things and the anxiety continues to build up underneath that. So the prophets remind us that we can't lay claim to real hope if we don't slow down first and grieve our present condition. Merry Christmas. As I said, Jeremiah was very, 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 very unpopular in his day. He was called the weeping prophet. He didn't have a whole lot of hopeful moments, but when he did, by golly, did they shine brightly in the darkness. And it's because of the work that Jeremiah, most especially, but many of these other prophets were actually called to. And Walter Brueggemann, who's a wonderful Old Testament scholar, kind of notices this pattern within uh, the prophets. That they are profiting, like they are prophesying first and foremost to a, a numbed people. A people who have been so subjugated by this empirical structure that they said, tomorrow is going to be just like today. Okay, so that's the difference. Anxiety is, I'm worried that tomorrow won't come. Despair is, I'm worried tomorrow's going to be just like today. Like, nothing will change. And so I turn off my heart. I close off my desires. And I just accept the world the way that it is today. And I just keep going. And if I can get out of life alive, then that's the best that I can hope for. Like, that was the problem in Israel, and that's the problem today. And so the prophets come along, and they don't speak to that with a sense of positivity and programs, but they actually speak to a numbed people about grief and about tears and about pain. You see, Jeremiah wrote the book Lamentations, and I love this summary that I heard of Lamentations one time. It's five chapters, and it's everything's terrible, everything's terrible, everything's the steadfast love of the Lord is new every morning, everything's terrible, everything's terrible. That's the structure of the entire book of Lamentations. You're welcome. So when you need the spark notes, like our trivia night, that's what it's like. Jeremiah wrote that, you write, you, you know, and it's, he's trying desperately to give a numb people permission to grieve because Jeremiah and the prophets knew if we do not learn how to grieve our present condition, to look around at our own lives and the lives of the people around us and go, this isn't okay. This isn't the way things are supposed to be. Or more particularly to say, this is not the way that God has designed this world to be. Now, how many of you in the past couple of weeks with all of the court cases that have been going on around the country and everything, like something welled up in you and you're like, that's freaking not okay. It's not okay. 
Why do we have to accept this? That's that prophetic call. Like, your heart is being softened. You are being invited to grieve that the world is not the way that it should be. And that this is not the world according to the way that God has designed it. And that there could actually be a better world. And so the prophets enter in and they welcome us into sacred waiting in the darkness so that we might learn to grieve our present condition because it is not until we grieve that we can actually lay claim to hope. Because if we try to skip over grief, if we try to move from numbness to hope, the best that we can hope for is that we lay claim to a mere sense of positivity. And again, our society's made us believe that positivity is the same thing as hope. And the problem is that keeps us in this cycle where we keep grasping at these shiny baubles of American consumerism, thinking that that's going to give us hope. If I have this, then maybe things will get better. If I purchase that product, then maybe things could change for me. And that's not just true on an individual level that we confuse positivity and hope because we haven't learned how to grieve. We haven't sat in that confusing in-between. But it's true of our society. It's true, I think, of the American church. Because I think we as Christians in America lack the prophetic imagination that Jeremiah is welcoming us to. Because we've allowed imperial problems to be answered by imperial solutions. Like the empire, shorthand, Anybody who's new, you'll hear me go harp on and on and on about empire. All I'm talking about is the kingdom without the king. Like when man, like humanity, when we try to do it and we try to build a society without Jesus at the center of it, that's what I'm talking about. So the empire build, the, creates all these problems, and then the empire goes, oh, here's the solutions to those problems. And it keeps us in the self-perpetuating thing. We see this time and again. And we've allowed, as Christians, we've allowed ourselves to buy into this imperial design to see imperial problems answered by imperial solutions that we feel like we have to agree with in the name of Jesus. And then there's shysters out there that come along and actually point to the imperial solutions to the imperial problems and go, no, no, that's what Jesus would want of you. He already gave the stamp of approval to this. You just have to vote for us, and we'll do Jesus' work for you. And we've shut down that prophetic imagination. I think it's these culture wars that we've seen for 70 years in this country. Have we solved any of them? And maybe it's in the empire's best interest that those problems don't actually get solved. Because we'll keep, we'll keep voting for people who promise us that they're going to solve the problems. But then they never solve the problems. Because if they do, then maybe we won't vote for them anymore. So all of these issues these struggles, these cries for justice that we find in our world today, the empire keeps giving us problems and because we lack, or gives us solutions and because we lack the prophetic imagination, we just kind of give those our stamp of approval and we continually take ourselves out of the great game. And meanwhile, we prevent ourselves from actually grieving, going, this isn't okay. This is not okay. And so I think... Advent begins with hope because it begins in darkness. Because we sit with Jeremiah, we sit with Isaiah, we sit with Ezekiel, we sit with these others in the darkness and grieve a world that has been torn apart by sin and death on a personal level, but also on a human level. And we grieve it and we feel it 
and we get angry and we get sad and we recognize those feelings are a heart of stone being turned into a heart of flesh. That God is inviting us to sit in the sacred waiting in the darkness. This is why we only have the one candle lit for the Advent season. And as the season goes along, it gets brighter and brighter and brighter. But the reward for our sacred waiting is salvation. It's justice. It's healing. It's hope. These are the rewards when we learn how to sit in the darkness with Jeremiah. And do we have the kind of vision that we need in this Advent season to help us to have that courage to slow down, to resist that compulsive need to just run out and buy a new thing or make plans or whatever? I don't believe that any of us are too busy. I don't believe it. I think it's a lie from hell. I told you the first best gift that God ever gave you was this Holy Spirit. The second best gift was the app on your calendar. Like that's the best, like that's the second best thing God has ever given you. Use it for the love. Create the space. But I think the evidence of our busy calendars is that we've bought into this like forward moving consumerist itching the surfacey needs that aren't actually dressing the deeper things. And we need courage and vision to slow down and to create the kind of space to allow the spirit of Jesus to begin to illuminate what is it that our compulsive needs are actually trying to show us that we really desire? And are those things going to be found by jumping online with major American corporations to buy something? Are those desires going to be found by sitting up late at night and just like texting all of our friends? Are those needs going to be met by going out on this adventure or jump, like flying off to another country or whatever it might be? Like, are those needs actually going to be met by all of the things that we compulsively run to? Or are there deeper desires that can only truly be met with King Jesus? So we're going to practice this now. We're going to practice sacred waiting here kind of on the advent of Advent as we're entering into this season to slow down. I'm going to teach you a very simple meditation. And then I'm going to have three questions behind me that are going to pop up. And if you're somebody, you know, you, you want to write, by all means, like take out your phone, open up a note, or if you just need to sit with them and allow the, the Lord to speak to you in that, um, whatever you need. We're going to create the space to slow down and just see what God wants to do. So I'm going to invite the, the, yeah, the lights to come down. Um, whenever, whenever we want to kind of enter into the presence of God, I, I really believe our bodies lead our hearts and our minds. So if you're all like bunched up on yourself, and I know maybe it's a little bit cold, like if you're closed off physically, you're probably going to be closed off spiritually. So when you're sitting there, I want you just to kind of open up your body, just like pay attention, like where are you holding a lot of tension? Are you slouched over? Are you crossed over yourself? Just open that up and to have your hands out in front of you um, as this symbolic posture of being receptive to whatever the spirit of Jesus wants to show you. And I'm going to lead a meditation. It's very, 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 very simple. This is, it just kind of helps me to get into the presence very easy. It's just a little line from Psalms that's repeated. And then I'm going to leave you with these three questions. Number one, when I enter into sacred waiting, what are the thoughts and the feelings that rush in to fill the space? And I'm not there to fight those things. I'm there to listen to them. What are they trying to tell me? Number two, what are the deeper desires that might those thoughts and feelings be pointing to? Like, this is the thing that I think I need. What is it I really need? 
And then number three, how can I allow God to fulfill the promises he's made to, uh, to be regarding my deepest desires? So I'm going to pray. I'll help us to kind of enter into a meditative space, and we'll just see what the Lord has to say. Be still and know that I am God. Be still and know that I am. Be still and know. Be still.
of you feel that it's your desire to get up, to do something, to say something? It's not about you turning those compulsivities into enemies to be overcome, but rather welcoming them in as friends because they're trying to tell you something about that deepest thing if you allow the Spirit of Jesus to take you by the hand and work you beneath the surface to show you what's truly there. And so we're going to enter back into worship. And you're, you're totally welcome just to stay in that space if the Lord's doing something and he's continually showing you something. Like, sit there with it. Like, don't feel that need to rush on if there's something there that he wants to do. If you need to grab somebody next to you and invite them to come alongside of you in prayer to help you to dig deeper into that or to uncover something, by all means do that. And if you want to worship as kind of continuing to enter into that space and to lay claim to the, the true promises of God um, for justice, righteousness, salvation, healing, then by all means do so. So I invite you to stand with me. I'm going to pray and we're going to worship. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the testimony uh, of your prophets who stood in the midst of a numbed people who spoke words that invited them to grief so that they might be able to envision what true joy might look like. And Lord, I pray even now in this Advent and Christmas season that we would be people who learn how to slow down, how, that learn how to wait upon you to show us what's beneath the surface of our own lives to show us our truest and deepest desires. And then to come to you as the only true source of justice and righteousness and hope and healing. God, I bless in this room all those who over the past couple weeks have felt those feelings of injustice, the sense that this is not the way that the world is supposed to be. Lord, I bless that as your handprint as your move in their lives to awaken them to a better world that can only come when Jesus is on the throne. And so, Holy Spirit, we continue to give you permission to move in this place, to speak to us, uh, to enliven us, to open us up, whatever you desire to do, that we can walk away from this place this morning saying, surely I have met God here and I have lived. So bless us, Lord, as we bless you. In the strong name of Jesus. Amen. This has been the City Beautiful Church podcast. To stay connected, follow us on social everywhere at City Beautiful CH. We hope you join us again soon.